Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. This is the place to learn how to get through your worst rock bottom and start to embrace adversity. I'm your host, Petra Belzebor. I'm a therapist and a life coach, but my biggest learning is from my own rock bottom. My story includes being raised in a cult, dealing with depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, and alcoholism. But along the way, I've learned to turn my entire life around to one of success, joy, and fulfillment. So in this podcast, I'll be talking to people from all walks of life who've done the same. I'll be teasing out the skills and tools necessary, as well as using my own experience to teach you how to turn your adversity into your biggest advantage. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Today on Skype, we've got Jahit Ali. He is a, a leadership coach and I'm so excited to uh, be able to talk to him and hear his story. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks. I'm so excited um, about having this conversation. I've heard of you from, from many people and I know we've met briefly, but um, yeah. fill, fill in the blanks for us. What are you most passionate about now within sort of work or life? So I see my coaching and, and coaching as kind of an evolution of, of consciousness and, and, and a, a building resilience to, to kind of the old and unconscious scripts that we all carry around with us. Um, so I love coaching people who are in a place of transformation, who are about to jump or are falling, but, but, but don't know how to kind of keep that momentum going. Um, and the reason I call myself a leadership coach is because I believe that we're all leaders um, and that leadership is actually just taking responsibility for things that happen in our lives. So being responsible um, and responding to those things. So rather than letting things happen to us, always making choices um, that we are happy and aligned with. So making conscious choices. Um, I'm always excited when I do these interviews because I always feel like I learn the thing that I need to learn uh, in, in the day, right? Um, it's, yes. it's a bizarre thing. Um, I feel like, oh, I'm just putting out lessons into the world, but actually it becomes deeply personal. Um, and I say that because I yeah. am in the middle of transition myself. So I have three days left at my day job and I'm jumping mm -hmm. into my own sort of mental health at work business. Um, so I'm excited to have this conversation. Uh, let, let's jump back for a second and, and give, yep. us a, give us a little bit of context just about growing up. What was your childhood like? I mean, do you think your, your parents and the education system set you up for, you know, what the real world was going to be like? Uh, in short, no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then also the opposite is true. So, yes. So actually... In, in the conventional sense, I don't think my childhood set me up for for life in that it wasn't necessarily a really happy place um, in my household. We weren't really taught the importance of having personal boundaries, really taught the importance of being able to say no to people. Um, there was a, there's a lot of, of kind of abuse and self-abuse going on. And so in, in many ways, it, it didn't set me up. But then the inverse of that is true in that actually the world is a hard place. And so it totally set me up. It, if it wasn't for those things, I wouldn't be passionate about what I am passionate about now. Um, and one of the things that I I really believe in, in and this is a Jungian idea, is that actually we're, we're like almost in a crisis of consciousness and, and people go one or two ways. And one way is to kind of almost 
like go backwards and, and become more and more unconscious and, and, and numb ourselves with with TV, with alcohol, with drugs, with with abuse, with whatever. And the other way to go is to become more and more self-conscious and self-aware. And so actually my childhood and my schooling set me on the, the self-aware path, which I'm really grateful for, even if the journey has been tough. Bumpy along the way. That's what it sounds really, like. Really, really, yeah, really bumpy at points. And so you're talking in, with the, the beauty of sort of hindsight, right? Um, yeah. where, where you've made sense of certain things and it sounds like you've been on an awareness journey to, you know, consciously make decisions for yourself. Um, but what it sounds like is that it wasn't always that way. Um, we no. sort of have to learn the, the hard way through our own experiences sometimes. Um, I mean, what was that like as a kid growing up with, with, without having this understanding, but just with, without those boundaries? Or, I mean, did you have siblings that, that were supporting you? What was that like? So I had an older, an older brother. Um, to give a little bit of context, I suppose, now. So my father, my dad was um, mentally ill. So he was paranoid schizophrenic and he was also an alcoholic. Yeah. Um, and both those things were known by the adults in the family or by my mum and my dad but I suppose as a child I didn't know or understand what those things meant I just saw kind of the, the manifestation of, of both of those things yeah um and so growing up I actually thought that was everybody's world I thought that the, that mm. everybody's world was this kind of strange dark mad place and so I did find happiness because you, you do in this madness but there was also a lot a lot of sadness and I think a lot of the time I felt quite quite lonely quite introverted and and quite ashamed um there was a lot of fear um and a lot of guilt and so growing up I felt like I was the youngest so I was the one that brought all of this into our lives and, and I carried this burden of of kind of responsibility um and wanted to always make it right for my mum or somebody else just because I was always making myself wrong. Um, my older brother, actually, I think, um, was quite a positive influence in many ways, mm. um, in that, that, that he definitely tried to protect me from certain things and tried to make things fun for me in this, in this kind of really kind of violent, dark home, in ways that my mum didn't really do. And so a lot of my happy memories are around stuff that he would do, he would do for me or he did, little gifts, little ways of just celebrating things with me. Um, and so I'm really grateful for that. So it's, it's odd because whilst I look back with hindsight and I can see the, 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 how I overcame that and the, the, the benefits of, of the darkness, so to speak, whilst I was in it, although there was loneliness and sadness, it was the norm for me. And so I just thought everybody was like this. I thought everybody had these feelings. I thought everybody had this loneliness. It didn't, it didn't feel different. I just felt wrong. And it's really interesting that it's only later in life when you kind of think of, oh, this isn't everyone's normality, um, that yeah. you begin to need to learn to cope with um, the challenges. I mean, I'm, I'm completely 
uh, resonating. My life wasn't uh, exactly as yours, but I was raised in a religious cult and people kind of go, oh my God, that must have been blah, 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 all the sensationalist stuff that they have in their mind, right? And I'm actually like, well, actually my childhood had some pretty good memories um, because uh, we had, we were five siblings. We traveled all over the world. Um, we were in a bubble, um, of our own normality. Right. And it was only later that kind of the, the depression hit and, and the helplessness hit when, when I had to learn the skills for living in what was actually the normal world, you know, and realizing how ill-equipped I was or unprepared, but really interesting when it is your normal, you look at it as if it is and you deal with whatever the maybe the feelings or emotions uh were that w- that were with you it, it's, it's exactly that and i and i and i think that whilst like when you're in that or at least for me when i was in that it, it didn't feel happy it didn't feel buoyant it wasn't what i know now life can be but i didn't know any different no and so and so as you say it, it it's your norm and then when you step out into the world and for me that was going to university suddenly you're like oh huh. i don't have the tools to deal with this stuff. right and 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 i just thought everything like i i remember when i moved out and moved in with, with like my, my, my friends at university, how their parents were really involved in their lives, how they really loved their parents. And for me, not having that real connection, I just assumed that was what families were. And it was seeing the other side that suddenly I was like, oh shit, that wasn't what I had. Yeah. And then suddenly not really being able to cope with it. So yeah, at the age of 18, even though I'd wanted to get away because I, I knew that this wasn't really where I wanted to be, I didn't really expect to find what I found. And I always speak about that, that we have a freedom from something and a freedom to something. And often when we're looking for freedom, we're looking to escape from something. Mm-hmm. And so, so we run away. But actually, once we've got that freedom, we have freedom to do something or be something or, or be part of something. And that's that's quite scary because we don't think of that when we're leaving behind what we're leaving behind. And so when I left home, for me, it was just about getting out. Of course. And then suddenly I was like, oh, now I've got freedom to be something else and to do something else. And I actually don't know how. No. Nope. Um, and it's terrifying because the options are suddenly limitless and you, and then your self-worth stuff comes up, you know, um, totally. am I worth being the person that I want to be? Am I worthy of this freedom or do I need to create a new box for myself to hide away in? And, and the worthiness question is, is, is a big one for probably everybody because I think at first we don't think we're worthy. And for me, it we was We don't even know what worthiness feels, looks like. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And for me, it was like, well, I can see that all these people have love, but I don't deserve that because... I came from this, I created this. And all the the blame and the guilt and the stuff that I felt when I was little didn't go away just because I'd escaped and wasn't living at home anymore. If anything, it's highlighted. Exactly. It's it's bigger because suddenly, actually, this this big free space, this this world that you've, you've kind of gone into just exacerbates all those shitty feelings that you have about yourself. And... For me, as a child, everything was quite secretive, and so I could keep it quite small and inside. And then when I step out into the world, it's like, oh, it's almost like you vomit it all out, and it's there for everybody. Um, and it just it just grows. It's heightened. 
18, I didn't have the the wisdom, the self-knowledge, the self-love, self-acceptance, the consciousness, whatever you want to call it. I didn't have any of that to really look after myself, to really cope. Um, and then as a student, there's like drink and drugs and parties and this, and you just escape and you numb and you, you watch daytime TV, which is, mm-hmm. which is just numbing or you, you, you sleep all day. You, you go out late at night, you do all those things to numb and you create something different around you. Um, that, that for me became part of my journey of, of community and self-acceptance, but there was definitely a lot of numbing there because I just didn't know how to deal with the freedom that I'd, given myself and that I used, really wanted. Yeah, and you used the word shame, and I just want to highlight that. You used it in the context of, of being in your family and secrets and shame and that sort of thing. Mm. And I, I really think numbing is our way of avoiding ourselves and avoiding the, the intense shame that we feel about who we are or what we've become. Um, and the, the, the less you numb, the more you've got to actually look at yourself in the mirror, and that can be a fucking terrifying thing. Yeah, totally. And, and shame for me has been a really big thing throughout my life, and probably something that up until probably three years ago, my resilience to was really low, and shame silences you. Shame stops you looking in the mirror. Shame stops you facing the thing that you need to face. And and for me, the uncomfortable truth is, is that avoiding this stuff and moving away from it doesn't help you build resilience to it, doesn't help you get over it. And actually what you need to do is look directly at it. You need to look in the mirror. You need to name that shame. And and actually, as soon as you've named it, it starts to lessen. And it's, it's almost immediate yep. because because for me, the, the naming of it became addictive. It's like, I can tell you now, so I'm going to tell you again, and I'm going to tell someone else, and I'm going to tell someone else. <laughs> and And it started to slip away because looking at it directly um, is important. And I think, like you said about looking at the mirrors really fucking hard. I went through years where I really just couldn't look in mirrors at all um, and, and avoided them or did them with, like, the lights dark. So to, just to see, oh, do I look okay? Can I go? I can go out looking like that, yeah. But because it was just so hard for me to look at myself physically. And although that's a, a physical thing, it is, that's a manifestation of an emotion. I, I, I couldn't like myself emotionally, so how was I going to like myself physically or vice versa? And I think that with, with looking in mirrors, things go one of two ways. People either become vain and empty and just stare at themselves but see through, or people avoid. And I was definitely an avoider. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't look at myself and I couldn't be with any of the darkness that I saw. And for me, that became a real physical manifestation um, and it was, was who I was. So I, why would I want to look at me? And this, this might sound like a silly question because you've talked about the context of growing up, but, but why do you think that was? Um, I don't know because if I look at myself in the mirror, I don't think I'm ugly. I don't, I don't hate my body. And I do hate both. Oh, I did hate both of those things, but not, not, not in a, I don't know how, I don't know how to say this, but, but not in, like, I, I wouldn't look at myself, like, I could look at pictures, and I didn't hate what I saw in pictures. So it wasn't, it wasn't the image of me, it was the moment of me that I couldn't see, and I don't know if that makes that much sense. It does, it does in my mind, it, it does, does in yeah. myself. 
Because it's the moment of of reality of actually seeing yourself and that could be your soul or your whatever you might uh, call it, right? The part of you that you wanted to hide away, which was still there. And and I suppose to an extent, the part of me, like, if I looked at myself and I saw my shame, well, how am I going to walk out the door? Mm. How are you going to do anything? Exactly. Whereas a, a picture's in the past, like even even on, on digital phones now, you've taken a picture, that moment's gone by yeah. the time you look at it. Picture's always happened. So it's being in, Where, the, in the present with yourself, like in the here and now. Yeah. Um, and, and I think when we numb, that's part of what we're numbing ourselves against. So alcohol is great at, at not making us present. Um, oh, yes. I am the queen of numbing. I am almost 10 years sober. Uh, because that was very much my route for numbing as well. But, but numbing, but also getting a, the false sense of being an amazing, cool person for a glimpse of time. And that feeling was intoxicating, uh, where mm. I could actually be normal in my mind. For a sh- and, and obviously those times got shorter and shorter, where, where it was, there was a normality and, and the darkness just came out more and more. Um, yeah. But I absolutely know how any kind of numbing just allows us to survive. Um, Mm. so we're already touching on this theme of, of adversity and, and, you know, I'm curious about how it impacts us as adults, but I mean, would you consider to have hit sort of a rock bottom or a crash point at any time in your life? Yes. I think there were, there were two points in my life where I, I definitely hit rock bottom or, or crashed to use your words, yeah, I I'd go as far as to say, kind of had some kind of nervous breakdown, um, and both of those were surrounding um, someone's death. So the first time, I was 24, and my boyfriend died, and he was like my first proper boyfriend. I first time I'd really fallen in love, and he was hit by a car, um, and it was my first real experience of grief as not only just emotional but really physical and there were moments when I, I just couldn't do anything and and, and like I, I have a memory of, of, of trying to get through the barriers at the tube and I was with a friend and I just couldn't remember how to get like my travel card and it was years before Oyster and put it in and I was just shaking and, and physically I just had no like body memory of what to do at all I just couldn't do it um, or and I went through a period where I'd just wake up in the morning and, and someone would have to say to me, are you going to have breakfast now? I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's what I do now. And the grief was really physical. Paralyzing. But, uh, really paralyzing. And, and at that point, I didn't... I got over it because time passed, but I didn't deal with it. Yeah. And so suddenly I was functioning, I was able to go back to work, and I was probably out for six months and then slowly was integrating again and and then fell back into all of the old patterns. Didn't do any self-work, didn't really look at kind of how I could build resilience, how I could cope, but what was was my body trying to tell me? Just didn't pay attention to any of that. Um, And then three years ago now, two and a half years ago now, um, my dad died um, and died in... I say really horrible circumstances. He was he was dead for five weeks before any of 
Oh my goodness. The family knew. Um, and there's, there's a lot of reasons we were restrained. There's a lot of reasons as like the NHS lost details, etc. So for whatever happened, he was in a, in a, in a, in a freezer in a hospital for five weeks. And I got the news the day after I got back from Glastonbury. So I've come back from Glastonbury. Mm-hmm. I've had a week of just partying and then yeah. suddenly some some random man at Redbridge Council ring me to tell me, well, to ask me if I knew this man. I was like, well, that's my dad. <laughs> and then he told me that he was dead. And the same thing happened. Like, I experienced the grief not just emotionally but really physically and was unable to do anything at all and 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 like my partner at the time and my brother had to really help me just to be able to read a letter that would come through the post or just make basic cognitive mm. how decisions. long would, would this last for just this real physical impact um it, along like days my, weeks oh it, it was months and there would okay. be moments there would there would be moments like in both instances it was months and there would be moments of ability yeah and that anything that you feel i suppose whether it's emotional or physical passes sure but the the overriding thing was that that there became i suppose the initial total like failure if, if that's what we want to call it physical kind of meltdown whatever maybe was just a couple of days but then other things clicking so with with my dad's death i couldn't read anything like at all i like i'd get a simple note and I'd be like, I've read that five times. It's like a paragraph long. None of the information is staying. I, I, don't, I don't understand. Really simple things I just couldn't do. And I was able to get out and go for a walk. So I suppose it's just in, initially for me, it'd be a, a total like stop. And then some things would come back online, but others wouldn't. But at the point of my dad's death, I was already starting and I had already decided to to see myself differently and, and, and to start doing all the work on myself. And so actually the recovery from, from his death was all about changing these patterns and actually removing myself from, from, from the world that I'd created where I was able to numb, where I was able to pretend whatever it was I needed to pretend to go out into the world and actually start building resilience to the fact that shame and fear were big parts of my life and to be open about facing those things and and um i think one of the things i realized with my dad's death or my recovery from from what happened there was i didn't want this cycle to be my cycle every time something big and traumatic happened to me i didn't want to fall back into this i needed to be able to cope and i needed to be able to lift myself up and it's okay to have grief and it's okay to have a, a physical reaction to that grief. But also I needed to be able to be resilient to those things and know that I could choose to move on, know that I had the strength to look after myself and that I didn't suddenly become like an infant or, or like I, I don't want to use the word vulnerable, but, but, but overly vulnerable <laughs> and, and perhaps a victim. <laughs> Yeah. Well, because I think vulnerability is great, actually. And so what I, I don't want to say is I don't want <laughs> Give to Give it a negative context, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I suppose it's vulnerable in, in the more conventional sense of that word, where actually I needed to be looked after. Well, and um, so, and I'm curious because I know there's a lot of conditioning around um, asking for help. Um, it, there, there can be a lot of... Uh, 
uh, shame around if you need to ask for help. And, and you said you started your journey of maybe self-awareness or self-development and noticing things. But what did you do? Were you able to ask for help? Did you, did you access therapy? Like, uh, was it just friends? What were the things that began to happen? So asking for help actually is an interesting one for me because it's, I find it quite hard to right. this day. <laughs> yes. and, and I didn't realise that. I was like, no, it's easy, I can ask. But when it really matters, I find it really hard. Well, because when the shame trigger is up, that's when it's hard. Yeah. Not like, oh, can but, you help me move some furniture? It's like, yeah, now exactly. I feel the shame. I can't ask for help because you might see me like this. And because I need it, like it's not even right. a request. With, without the help, I, I can't do this thing. Right. And, and, and so asking for help always seems like a really simple thing to me. But when, when you go deep with it, it's actually a really big deal and yeah. a really important thing to be able to do. But I think in the moments that I'm talking about with my, um, my, my partner who died and my dad's death, it wasn't even that I needed to ask for help. It was just that, oh, shit, look at him. <laughs> like, he needs help. Um, and, and, and that's a place that I don't want to get to is that actually you don't even have the cognition to be able to say, actually, can I ask you for help? Because the concept of help just isn't even there because the concept of being able to do some of these things is just gone. Um, and so actually what the, the, the person that I, I, I am now and the person that I want to become always is the person who can just pick up the phone and say, I need help. Um, I did have some therapy at both times, and actually didn't really like either. Um, and I think one of the, the things I didn't like about the certain therapies that I had was it, it, they felt very stagnant. They felt very... That's um, certain the problem. Yeah. And, and whilst I think that, that we have to face the thing that we, we are being haunted by or the thing that we can't be with, for me, that there has to be a, a going deeper with it rather than just sitting there and, and, and crying or like, what, what, what is it here? And I, and I found, and this might just be the, the therapist that I had, but I, I found that there wasn't necessarily that kind of questioning like I want to say powerful questions but but there wasn't that that kind of question the question is to take take me deeper into what was going on because I think that sitting in it felt like wallowing in those situations whereas what I wanted to do was be with it and face it and and really understand that my emotions did not define who I was but they were just something that I was feeling um, so, you, so you wanted a bit of education around what was going on for you emotionally and maybe some strategies or support in moving you beyond that totally and and i think that with the second batch of therapy that i had i initially saw um a psychotherapist who did um he might have been a psychiatrist actually who did an assessment of me and then i went on to one of his therapists or his counselors um but actually the sessions with him were great mainly because he gave me a book um, oh. about about mindfulness and depression. Oh. And it was really the first time that I started to do any kind of meditation. But the most powerful thing about that was that the, 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 the book basically, you read the book and then you moved on to the practice. And so it gave you the kind of the intellectual thing that you needed or that I needed to step into the practice. But it also really made me understand something about pain that I hadn't got before and so 
for me, whenever I had emotional pain, it would spiral and it would become something that, that, that was too big for me. And actually, one, one of the things that the, the, the book and then the practice tried to do was to teach you that it's just an emotion. Just be with it. It doesn't have to spiral. And I really learned that physically because in most of the meditations that we did, but specifically um, there's one which is about yoga poses, it was that actually to lean into your, your where you feel pain physically, and not so that you make it worse, but that actually that you stretch it out and that you breathe into it and that you then learn that that place that you had pain actually becomes a place of growth. So when you've got muscular pain, when you stretch that muscle and you don't hide away from the pain, but you breathe into it and stretch, that muscle becomes bigger, that muscle becomes stronger. And learning that physically, let me see the truth of that emotionally as well. And so I run a lot. So I run 10K three times a week. And the reason I do that is because actually it's a, it's a form of meditation for me in that actually as I'm running, at some point I might get a stitch. At some point something in me might hurt. And yes, I have to listen to it because actually if it's too painful, then I need to stop. But it's about understanding that you can run through that pain if you concentrate your focus into that area, if you breathe into that area, then that area becomes stronger. And actually the pain is just a point of stretch. It's a point of transformation. It's a point of growth. Whereas before this book, I always saw pain as something that was just a victim. I was just a victim of it. And that I was always going to have these spirals. And that, and that was just it. Like as soon as pain came, it overtook. And so, um, and, and what I'm hearing is that you, you sort of agree with, with um, the notion that we can turn our adversity or our pain into... Uh, our advantage or our growth and so there's something about sitting with it and putting practices or routines in place that can help us to change our perspective on when that kind of pain hits us completely totally and and I pain is just part of being a complete person um like we all have pain some people it's relative like it will be based on the different experiences that we've had like yours growing up in in, in a cult will be different to mine yep. growing up with my family It'd be different to somebody who grew up in a family where it, it was all ponies and stuff but, <laughs> and so but, we, but, you imagine everyone else had <laughs> yeah but each, each of us will have pain yes and and it, it doesn't matter like there's no judgment on that and I think that what I did was judge my pain, and actually, it's just something that I feel. I, st I still feel it now. Sometimes I have emotional pain still. I still get upset about stuff, obviously. Sometimes I have physical pain still because I might hurt myself. Or, you know, like those things still exist, and they will always exist. And so, for me, kind of getting over adversity is not about getting rid of these things, but building resilience to the stuff that limits you, building resilience to the stuff that makes you believe that you need someone else to complete you, that makes you not believe in your own worthiness or your own wholeheartedness. Um, or something that kind of makes you buy into that scarcity language that is so kind of prevalent in our world. Um, we are enough, and that's all we need to be. Like, I am the best I can be every single day, and some days that's better, and some days that's worse, but that's me today. Um, and pain is part of that, just like happiness is part of that. And one of the things that I really believe, and I think this is a, a Brené Brown notion, is that emotions are like icebergs, and you might have happy at the tip of the iceberg, 
But actually what makes up that happiness is is lots of other things and like all the ice that's underneath the water. Um, and, and something that, that I had like realization early this year was that I can have grief in my happiness as well. And so at Christmas, a really good friend of mine just suddenly died and, and it was devastating. I was really sad. I had grief the, the day I found out was, was awful. And actually, I quickly kind of built my resilience to it and recovered and, and got back to a point of, of being me, the person I want to be. And I still had grief. I was happy in my life because right now I am happy. Mm. And within that happiness, there was grief. And, and I think that we find it so hard to understand that emotions are really More than one thing com- can coincide. Yeah. Mm. And, and actually, in sadness, there are lots of things. And sadness can be lots of different things. Um, and often the only words that we can use to describe our emotions are happy, sad, yeah, or angry. angry. Yeah. <laughs> um, do, do you think that we need adversity in order to be able to maybe, oh, I'm, th- I'm thinking about your profession and you're, you've now switched things around. So you support mm. and help people through transition, through leadership, all those sorts of things. Do you think you would be as good a coach as you are if you hadn't experienced the pain that you've experienced? Um, that's difficult to answer because I wouldn't be the person that I am if I hadn't been through what I've been through. And so the answer to that is no, I would be a different coach. But I believe that I could be as good. Yeah. Um, I don't think adversity is necessary well it depends so i don't necessarily think people have to go through what i went through to be good but you do keep talking about resilience and some kind of practice of experiencing and facing up to that allows us to build our character or our awareness or even our empathy perhaps yeah and 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 i I think that was the place i was going to go to is that regardless of what has happened to us, regardless of how good or bad our parenting or family of origins were, we all have unconscious scripts. We all have yeah. stories that sit in the dark that we, we don't face. We all, we all have a saboteur or that limiting belief. Yeah, critical we have, we have, Yeah, whatever you want to call it, like an upper limit problem. We, how, However good our parenting is, we we do I mean it's a Philip Larkin quote they fuck you up your mum and dad and there's a truth there and it's not it's not about them being good or bad because I think we have to believe that they did their best always but actually we all have our own thing in inverted commas that we do need to face that we need to build resilience to and and part of that is around the world that we live in as well because it's it's so plastic and so we are thrown images of what we should want, what we should look like, how we should be, what when we hit certain ages we should achieve, how many children we should etc. Yeah, et yeah. like all of this stuff is just thrown at us. And it's getting even worse in that, that like smartphones are amazing things and they just bombard us with information. And so how do you cipher through that? How do you get through? And so I think it isn't necessarily that someone has to go through adversity i think part of the process of becoming is about building resilience to the saboteurs you have so whether it be perfectionism whether it be that you compare yourself to other people because you don't think you're enough that actually you build resilience to that 
you, you can't get rid of it. So if you're a perfectionist, it, you, you'll always have that urge. But actually really understanding when you're hooked into that, that emotional kind of cycle and accepting that that's okay, noticing that you're there, and then deciding actually, do you know what, I'm going to stay here today, I'm going to learn a bit more about what goes on for me in this place. Or I'm going to choose to just do it differently and, and not follow that perfect no, notion of what I think, la, la, la. Yeah. Um, so, so it's not necessarily that people have to go through something specifically traumatic and adverse. But, but it's, actually, it's relative, the adversity that um, impacts them. Yeah, and, and also it's in our world. Like, we live in a world where we live in a scarce world, a world full of scarcity, and so everything is built on fears. So yeah. people people have a fear of growing old and having no money, which is how pensions become this big thing. Yeah. Or or paying the mortgage, getting out. Like, everything is becomes fear-based. Um, and so that's what I think we need to build resilience to, our fears. Accept them and don't let them rule us. And so what... Um Routines or practices do you put in place for you in order to look after your your mental health and allow you to challenge your fears? I mean, I've heard something around mindfulness, uh, something about your running. Um, what what are the things that you, you know are your non negotiables that help you uh, kind of thrive? So a, a big big thing is walking my dog, okay. and actually I have to go. I, we go out for almost two hours every morning part of that is just actually being outside so where i live in east london i I live in a park basically i live by the canal and i can get to another park really quickly so he and i can be out for two hours and not really cross any roads so even though we're in almost central london yeah it's like oh there's loads of green and there's trees and actually being outside is really really important to me because mindfulness isn't just about sitting down and having a meditation mindfulness is about seeing the world mindfully yeah and so connecting to your body yeah and so walking and looking at nature and 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 just noticing what 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 the leaves are doing noticing the passage of time through through the trees it's like really just noticing the world around you because we so often don't um and that's that's a big part of of my practice is actually to to be outside mindfully as opposed to just to sit lotus position for example and and meditate um the dog's important because actually the dog taught me how to love without guilt and so i got the dog or i got the dog with my my ex-partner as part of my own recovery um because we looked after his dad's dog for two weeks um in the in the middle of my own kind of breakdown after my dad's death and in those two weeks, I changed massively. Suddenly, there was this little dog who'd attached to me really quickly, who I had to do stuff with and for. And suddenly, suddenly that was giving me reasons to just like me again. And so in two short weeks, things started to really change quite massively. And so we got a dog. And, and just the love that I have for him... And the love that he has back. And, and there's a neediness in dogs, which in humans I, 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 I don't like. <laughs> but actually, he he is ev- he, like, he needs everything from me. And so 
even on those mornings when I'm like, I don't want to go, it's raining, yeah. can't bother to say, like, no, I have to get up, I have to go. He reminds me of why being outside is important, no matter what the weather is. He reminds me of why having this practice is really important because he, he needs it. I need it and I can forget where this it's his urge. He has to do that. And so it takes me out into the world and it, and it, and it he's like my structure that says, you like this, this two hour walk in the pouring rain, halfway through, you'll be like, I fucking love this. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. go and do it. It's just got to force you out. And then it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And so that, that, that they're my non-negotiables, like the running, yeah. um, the, the, the dog walking, the, I go through periods of journaling and not journaling, but the reflection, reflection is important to me um, in that you don't have to, to journal to reflect. But actually having those kind of quiet moments in, in the morning with a cup of coffee where actually I do just reflect, where I set an intention for the day. Um, I have a, a, a pack of spiritual anim, spirit guide animal cards and I pull one most mornings and then that animal becomes part of my intention like what does that animal represent what what that animal can i bring into my life how can i be that animal that day and that doesn't mean like barking or, <laughs> no, or, it. or but but it, it's it's, but what, it's what challenging energy. yourself in some way yeah totally and and also making me just more aware of how i approach a situation Completely. So that, that that if I have an intention in the, in the, in that 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 day, and I, I've got this animal card, so I'm going at everything like a bear, for example. Well, how do I approach this situation? How do I have a conversation with my mum? How do I want to be with myself? Um, and just being really conscious of it. Um, and the other thing I am also really aware of is not allowing these things to become habitual and so that they are practices and it's okay to fail at practice and actually I think it's in, it's it's you have to so some days you, you just don't do them so, days, so what I'm hearing is some um, self-compassion and kindness to yourself it's not like beating yourself with a stick to do this stuff exactly and and I think it's important to for that reason to to, to sometimes fail because except that that's going to happen and don't don't replace one unconscious script with another. Don't Ooh. don't make meditation. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. let's say that again. <laughs> don't <laughs> don't replace one unconscious script with another. I love that. I need our yeah. audience to listen to that. <laughs> yeah, bookmark that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't 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 replace one unconscious script with another. And um, this was something that that mindful way through depression book taught me as well was that actually it is important to have a practice and when you first set it up, be a little bit regimented about it so that it becomes something. You're trying to make new habits, right? So that takes a bit of structure and time. Exactly. And then also accept that sometimes you're not going to do those things that you've created for yourself. And that's okay. That doesn't need to spiral into something bigger or darker. And self-acceptance is about accepting the whole of you. And that's the person who is brilliant that's a person who can sometimes be a bit of an arsehole that's yeah. a person who fails and the person who succeeds love that so and much mm. one of the things I often say to, to the clients that I work with is you don't have to like every part of you you have to accept every part of you and love that but that doesn't mean that you have to like that sometimes you are an arse because sometimes we are 
But it doesn't mean that just because you've got that urge, you have to act on it. Because as soon as you can acknowledge, oh, shit, that's, that's, that's a bit of a nasty urge. I don't want to do that thing. Yeah. Then you just choose not to do it. But you're, but you're practicing that um, awareness. Um, Jahi, before, before we end, I just have one final question. I'm curious, you've experienced a lot of grief, I think it's fair to say, in, in one mm. guise or another. Um, but also, of course, the grief of, of your dad, I imagine, would have brought up you know, some complex, unfinished stuff um, from, from your tricky sort of childhood. And if, if you were to give a piece of advice to somebody who might be struggling, you know, in that space now with some of those things, sort of that complex grief, maybe of a family member where there was a complex relationship, um, mm. what advice would you give to that person as far as being able to move through that one step at a time? Mm. So for me, the hardest thing to do was to accept that my dad did his best. And it's the most important thing that I did as well because it lifted me out of victimness and it made me have empathy for him. Wow. And so that, that, that would be my advice. Always believe that the, the family member, whether they're, they're dead or alive, is always doing their best. And then respond to that best the only way that you can in that moment. Um. Oh my God, that's, that's deep. I mean, just because I'm thinking of the impact of some of the, the sort of adults in, in my environment, you know, there's, there's just a lot of anger, a lot of resentment, stuff that I've, I've of course, been, been working through. Um, mm. But to have that empathy that they did their best in uh, questionable circumstances, um, when I always, when I guess my generation always says our parents had a choice, we didn't because we were born into this sort of environment. And, and yeah. they did and they didn't because with their capacity to make decisions, they traded in one script for another. If, if you know, they wanted to get away and have freedom from their own backgrounds and, and sort of strict lifestyles mm. and find some kind of freedom. And so they really did. It's coming to me now. Trade one script in for yeah. another and then got stuck there. And so learning to have a bit of empathy, even though the, the, you know, the, the impact on some of our generation is still going on today. Um, is really profound, and I'm not quite sure I'm as far in it as you are, so there's, there's a lesson for me right there. Mm. And, and what you say is really, really resonant and, and rings so true for me, because actually every generation has the same amount of choice as the one before. Every generation has something that limits or controls. Um, and if, if I think of my my mum, for example, like a, a, a woman in the Turkish culture, there's going to be lots of things around why she made the choices that she made. And I can judge and say, well, because of your choices, X, Y, and Z happened to me. Yeah. Or well, I, can have, I can have empathy and say, well, she did her best. Yeah, and, within and, the choices that she felt she had. And, and, and that doesn't mean that actually she couldn't have done something different or that she, she couldn't have grown her consciousness and, and, and stepped into a different part of life but the fact is that she did the things that she did and she didn't do them because she thought she was having an easy life she thought they were the in inverted commas the right thing to do um and that was her best and i think that that you then have to decide well is is can you accept that can you accept that that person did their best and that doesn't mean you have to forgive everything but just accept they did their best and meet them where they are or can you not accept that? And if you can't accept their best, then the information for you there is, well, you need to step away from that relationship entirely. Um, 
and actually my journey is still and my practice is still about these people do their best and I fail at it all the time and and I forget that and but it's the thing that I remind myself of and it's one of the hardest things in those moments of shame anger arguments to to realize they're doing their best yeah so difficult it's like yeah, it's like an anchor that brings me back to, okay, so if they're doing their best, well, I need to be my best as well. So that's a reassuring way of looking at it because it isn't about, you know, sustaining some kind of nirvana and always having that view, but it's realizing our complex emotions and then coming back to that as an anchor and then using it as an impetus to live the best life you possibly can live. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, Jahi, we've come to the end of our, uh, our time. Thank you so much for your, your honesty, um, the things that I've learned uh, through this podcast. And I know that people will be hearing, you know, what are the routines and practices that they need to discover for themselves? How do they accept certain people and behaviors in their life? Um, and how do they look at their pain? Oh, I loved that um, and accept it in some way and use it for growth. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If something helped you today, please do share this episode with a friend and let them know that they are not alone. I know that for me, isolation kept me stuck much longer than I needed to be. So let's practice courage and talk to someone about what's going on as that's the first step to making life amazing. Check out my website, petravelsboer.com for your free Kickstarter plan, which will teach you to turn your biggest weaknesses into your greatest strengths. Join the community of people who are changing the way they view life's challenges and living life to the full. Until next time, goodbye.